Hi, my name is John Cullen. I'm one of the pastors here at Southbridge. Thank you so much for checking out our sermons online. Our prayer is that you're challenged by the Word of God and grow in your affections for Christ. We recognize that this can be a great supplement to your personal study, or maybe you simply could not make it to church this week. Our hope, though, is that you're plugged into a local community of faith. So if you live in the Raleigh-Durham area and are looking for a church, we would love to meet you on a Sunday and help you get connected. If you are not local, we want to encourage you to find a gospel-centered church in your area. Thank you again for letting us be a part of your week. Enjoy the Word of God proclaimed. I love God's Word for a lot of reasons. It's very practical. Uh, it's raw. It talks about characters in the Bible. It doesn't just always show their best side. A lot of times it shows some real difficult stuff in people's lives. And there's some things in the Bible that are stated real directly to us that we don't have to pray about. Like you don't have to pray about whether or not to do it. You just do it. The Bible tells us to do it. We already know what God says, what he thinks about it. As a father, I'm a father. There's certain things that it tells me to do. I'm supposed to disciple my kids. It doesn't really give the option. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, you train them up in the Lord. Show kids what it looks like to love Jesus. Fathers, I don't always do this one. So don't exasperate your children. And I don't have to like think to myself, should I antagonize them right now? Should I poke? Should I put? Like the, now, sometimes I do it, but the Bible says not to do it. Like I don't have to pray about it. I know what to do. But there's some stuff that I've learned as a father, a husband, a pastor, that's not in the Bible, that for some reason people just expect you to do, like at my house, whenever we buy something that needs to be assembled, it's assumed that I will put it together. Why? Like, I don't think that's fair. It's not in the Bible. If you find a verse of it, about it in the Bible, send it to me, text it to me, email me. I'd love to see it. I'll stop complaining about this. Until then, here I go. Last week was Memorial Day weekend. We bought this soccer net for our girls. And I'm putting this thing together, and I'm reading the directions. The directions are making me confused. Like, do I, have I ever read? Like, do I even know how to read? It's like, take part L, put it with part J, and you want to bring your own K. I'm like, what are you even talking about? I'm flipping through the thing. But then I get to this spot, and oftentimes you find this in instructions. It'll tell you what something's made for, what it's not made for. I got to this spot that says, this soccer net is not intended to be climbed on, hung from, or run into, and it shows kids doing it. And I'm like, those are my kids. And I take it to my kids, and I'm like, hey, look, look, this, you're not supposed, don't, I don't want to see you doing any of this stuff. That's not what this was made for. And it got me thinking. There's probably a lot of instructions to talk about how something, what it's made for, what it's not made for. And so I went online, and I started reading. There was this one hair dryer I read about. It was made by Sears, which may be why they're irrelevant now. But it said, and it's a hair dryer, right? A hair dryer. It says, not to be used while sleeping. Why do you need to tell us that? Who did that? I want to meet that person. There was some laundry detergent that on the laundry detergent instructions, it actually said, remove clothes prior to dispersing them into the washing machine. And I read that and I thought, who is the man? It was a man, by the way. Who was the man that thought to themselves, I need a shower and I need to wash my clothes. I'll just climb on in here. Like, why do I not take the clothes off to be inefficient? Like, who would do that? And a couple other instructions. I brought a picture so you didn't think I was just making these up. This is dog shampoo. Look what it says in the circle part. Remember to eliminate all escape routes well in advance. Once your pet is slippery wet, he or she is suddenly smarter and faster than you. Assume if you're laughing, you've had this experience. Here's some human shampoo bottle. Apply to wet hair. Really? We had to be told that? Apply to wet hair. Massage into scalp and hair, working through the ends. Rinse thoroughly. Feel free to belt out of some horrible 80s tune that you listen to when nobody's around. I don't do that. Whatever. You totally do it. So they know. They know how you're made. They know how you work. You look at the instructions. Here's the great news. As people, we've, our maker wrote a book. And it talks about what we're made for in the book. Look at this passage from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7, it says this. 
It says that everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, you were created for glory, whom I formed and made, just in case you missed that on the first end, you were made for his glory. Psalm 100 verses 1 and 2 say this, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And those of you who can't sing like me say, amen, that noise. But listen to this next part. Come into his presence with singing. Serve the Lord. It said, serve the Lord. It says, worship isn't just singing. Serve the Lord with gladness, but it is singing. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. Commanded to worship, talked about, tied into our creator. We're made for worship. In fact, the New Testament says that God's searching for a certain kind of worshiper. In John chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, but the hour is coming and is now here. Now's the time. When the true worshipers, oh, so there's false worshipers, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking, he's looking, he's roaming through the earth, looking for such people to worship him. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we know that we're supposed to worship in spirit and truth, and the Bible instructs us we're made for worship. But here's the reality. Not everybody reads the instructions, right? Some of you are engineers, like, amen, I know better than the instructions, right? And there are people in this world, they don't know what God's word says. But you just look at their practice and you see that we're all worshipers and we're worshiping all the time. Think about different experiences people have. Why is it uh, that we know the universal language for victory is throw your arms up? We're made for worship. Go to a sporting event, go to some celebration. It's like arms up, it's up. We're made for worship. Why is it that when a guy becomes infatuated with a young lady, he can take joy in the most mundane things that she'll chew her food? He's like, look at her jawline, isn't it beautiful? He learns her fragrance. He knows what she smells like. He knows where she, he's not a stalker, but he knows a bunch of stuff about her. He learns what kind of music she likes. That's worship. Why is it a young gal, a 12-year-old girl can go to a concert, somebody she's never met, but she resonates with this group, and maybe they've sung some songs that she's identified with, and then she gets to touch the lead singer as he comes by, and she faints. It happens. That's worship. Wait, I don't know if you'll watch tonight, the NBA finals are on, the Raptors are playing, Golden State Warriors, and one of the things that some NBA players have been doing this year, I've never seen it before, maybe they've always done it, but they're giving out a shoe after the game. One, not a pair of shoes, one shoe. Who wants that? That's nasty. Like, you've been sweating, running around in these things. People are fighting to get these shoes, like pushing, shoving, and he's tossing one shoe out. If I walked up to you in the lobby and I handed you my shoe, I hope you'd go, you're weird. Why are you giving me a shoe? You certainly wouldn't go home and put it on your mantle. Do you know why we do that? Because we're made for worship. We're fans. That means fanatics. We're fanatics of these. It's not the shoe. It's the person that it was tied to. We're made for worship. And where we're at in this book in Corinthians that we've been going through together, we're entering a new section. It's a section on worship. It starts in chapter 11 and verse 2, and it goes through chapter 14, verse 40. And specifically, worship doesn't just happen at church, but specifically in this book, it's talking about when we're gathered together as the assembly of believers, as the church, what our worship should look like. And so if you have your Bibles, join me there, and we're starting this new section about worship, talking about today being made for worship, and we're talking specifically about communion. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. It's not because I'm skipping over verses 2 through 16, but let me read you what he said in verse 17, and we'll go back to verses 2 through 16. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. All right got tough words for them. He's had a lot of tough words for them through this book. But in verses 2 through 16, he's had good words for them. If you go back, he says, I do commend you. I commend you in, and he's talking about their assembly together, some of the things they were doing as far as men and women and their roles in worshiping together. Now here's the hard part about verses 2 through 16. A lot of times we get caught up in the cultural context there. It's talking about head coverings. 
And it's kind of like that chapter we did in chapter 8. You remember in chapter 8 we talked about meat sacrificed to idols, and I said, I bet nobody here is struggling with meat sacrificed to idols. And we didn't want to get all caught up in the cultural context, but there were some universal principles that were happening there. And when he tells them, he says, I commend you, if you read verses 2 through 16 in this, but, and then he gives some instructions, and he starts to talk about stuff that can be real confusing to us, and he talks about men praying, prophesying in church. Praying is just people talking to God on behalf of people. Prophesying is, is people talking to people on behalf of God. And he talks about men doing that and how it would be dishonoring if they had their heads covered and women doing that. And it is okay for women to pray and prophesy in church. He's talking about it there. That's not the problem. The problem is the way that it could be done if they didn't have their heads covered. And we can get into, I, I believe all that stuff is cultural th- through there. But the universal principle is when you start to look at what that culture mean, meant by that, for a woman to not have her head covered meant she was available. And so they had married women coming to church acting like they weren't married women, having their heads uncovered. And they're saying they're doing it in the name of freedom, freedom and worship. And he talks about shaving heads. That was a punishment for adultery. It's how prostitutes would oftentimes have their hair. And he talked, it, basically it'd be like if, if a woman came to church, with a, a married woman, no wedding ring, wearing a bikini, and talking about how she wants to get up in front of the church. And he's going, no, no, that's not. But where's the verse? He's, it's the principle. It's the principle that you're not showing submission to the spiritual leadership in, in your life. And so you can pray and prophesy, but it, it's based on What's your life looking like? And he tells, tells him here, be discerning. Be discerning in this. He's commending them in this. He's just giving them some heads up. Hey, look at this stuff. Think about these things. But I don't commend you about the Lord's Supper. I don't commend you about communion. Because what you're doing, it's not communion. You're doing, the, you're doing the motions. You're taking the elements. You're doing all the things that Jesus commanded to do. But in God's eyes, it's not the Lord's Supper. Look what he says. The following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better but for the worse. Listen, you'd be better off if you didn't even get together. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions. He tries to be positive here in verse 19. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? No, I can't. I will not. And then these words sound familiar if you've taken communion here at, at Southbridge before. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What we're talking about here with communion is a controversial topic. Throughout years, denominations, different Christians have argued about who should take it, when they should take it, how often they should take it, what elements should be used, who's allowed to take it, who's allowed to distribute it. What does it mean? Is it just symbolic? Is it something does it actually become the body and blood of Jesus? And there's lots of things. So controversial that one time, if you disagreed with the queen, you could be burned at the stake for your beliefs about communion. The stuff that we're talking about and some of the controversies have to do with salvation. It's not like just, a, oh, we just disagree about that. No, it's like whether somebody's going to heaven or not. And there's, some, there's, a, there's a denomination that teaches if you don't take the element, that's how you receive Christ is through the elements. And we're going to teach you here, here at this church, we believe what was said by Jesus himself when he says, this is my body, and he's physically standing there with them. Everyone understood that was symbolic. It wasn't actually his body. It's a reminder Salvation happens just at the cross of Christ, not at the communion table. But, but the problem here was none of those things. 
problem here is verse 18. There's division. And then he tells them, what you're doing is not actually even communion. Because here's the reality. We're going to talk about what communion is today. I'm going to tell you several things, but here's one of them, that communion is a celebration of unity. Communion is a celebration of unity. Union with Christ that we have and union with one another as the body of Christ. And you think about what is it that, that brings people together? What is it that causes unity? It's when we have something in common. And somebody left up here a Cubs hat from, from what I was talking about in this. And so you got a Cubs hat here. And uh, if I give you a nod and i got my Cubs hat on, and you're just a person out there, you're like, well, that's fine. Why, why is that guy nodding at me? Why are you calling me out? All the people nodding. Why are you calling me out? But if you, does anybody here have a Cubs shirt? Anybody a Cubs fan in the back row? You don't have your shirt on. But if, Cubs fan, if I give you a nod, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, hey, we got this together. Now, I'm not even a Cubs fan. Somebody just left his hat up on the stage, okay? But... <laughs> But if you're like a Hurricanes fan or if you're a Cowboys fan or a Red Sox fan or whoever you're a fan of and you see somebody else, if you're just walking on the street you start giving people the nod, people are like, that guy, that is, they're weird. What are they doing? But if you see you've got, the, you got that commonality that brings you together or, or another way, like if we go out in the lobby today and you and I have never met before, never talked, and we meet, we start exchanging pleasantries. How long have you lived in Raleigh? How long have you been going to this church? And just talking about stuff. But then I find out that you and I have the same hometown. I'm from Flint, Michigan. If you have the same hometown, I'm so sorry. But then we'd connect, and I'd say, where'd you go to school? And we'd know the same schools. And have you ever eaten at this restaurant? And do you know any of these people? And we'd have this commonality that would then bring us together at a deeper level than we were just exchanging pleasantries. And it can happen on basic stuff, like if you just watch the same movie this week and you're talking with somebody, hey, did you see the part where, whatever movie that's out, Iron Man went down, did you see the part where Aladdin came out of the lamp, like whatever the movies are that, that people are talking about right now. Did you see these things happen? Did you see when the guy got the girl or when they broke up or whatever happened? Now you're going, it's like you brought together. Here's the reality. The communion table of Christ transcends all the social stuff that happens in life and should bring the most diverse people in the entire world together. Republican and Democrat should be able to come to the table together. Disagree about every issue in society, but we are one at the cross of Christ. White and black, rich and poor, like you pick socialist, capitalist, come to the cross of Christ to be unified, Jew and Greek, male, female, slave, free. That's what the Bible says, Galatians 2, 328. And so what we see here, if you go back one page in chapter 10, go back and look at what Paul says in chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a, and that's an interesting word, participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. If we all partake of the one bread. The word that he uses there for participation, you saw it was two times in verse 16, chapter 10. It's the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship. It means to share, to have in common. And what we have in common as followers of Jesus Christ in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ transcends all the differences that we have in life. And so you can hear like an orator, uh, a great politician talk about we live in this great free country. We shouldn't have racial injustice. We shouldn't have a bunch of the problems that we have. And they're doing that based on a law. They're doing it based on a dream of what could be and should be. Paul's going, no, this is a reality. This is what is. You are one in Christ. And so there's division. Then you're not acting like what's reality of what's true, that you are unified in communion. You come together at communion. If you've got diversity, what you're celebrating is not communion. If you've got division, I mean, it's not communion. Because here's the reality, you get this, you can't have communion if you don't have union. You can't have communion if you don't have union, first with Christ, then that should flow out into with each other. 
And for the Corinthians, they didn't have communion with each other. And so you got these people because of, and the problem here, their division. We saw a division earlier in the book, chapter one. It was about making a big deal about the messenger instead of the message. That's not the problem here. The problem here, we read about it. Verse 18 says division. Verse 19 talks about the good part of that. Verse 20 through 22 talks about the problem is rich and poor people. The rich people, knowingly or unknowingly, didn't matter, are excluding the poor people, and it's causing division in the body. And Paul's saying, so what you're doing with the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper. What you have to understand with that is the way they did communion wasn't the same way we do communion. We do communion, it's kind of like a ceremony. We take just a little cracker, a little juice. They'd have a whole meal. Think church potluck. And what would happen is you come together, these are house churches. They come together to a house, and, and like in all societies, rich people then had more time than poor people did. Poor people worked hourly wages. They had to work longer and, and harder, and they had less. And the rich people, they'd show up early to the dining room, and they'd set up their feast for their food, and then their other rich friends would come, and they'd fill up the dining room, and they're all talking with each other, and they're all having a good time, and then the poor people would show up, and they'd be in an adjacent room or maybe out in the courtyard, and they had less food, and then it was time to celebrate. The rich people were just having their time together, ignoring the needs of the poor people. And that was the problem that was taking place in this church. And the, only, the difference was how much money they made? Listen, communion should break all barriers. You think about the context for this, the ultimate context for this is the Exodus. If you go all the way back of the Passover that, that took place, and if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, what happened in the Old Testament was that God was freeing his people, the Israelites, from Egyptian bondage. And he does all these plagues. The last one is the death of the firstborn. But if you killed a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of the house, the death angel would pass over your house. And then the people, they would have this unleavened bread, they would flee out of there because they didn't have time to make the bread the way they normally make the bread. And, and then God tells them in Exodus, do this, celebrate this every year. Well, the last supper that Jesus has with his disciples is a Passover meal. A lot of people don't know that. He's having this Passover meal together, and he's redefining these elements. But do you know who's there? There's 12 disciples that are there. And yeah, Judas is there, and so is Peter, and so is John. We know these popular guys. You know who else is there? There's another disciple named Simon, not just Simon Peter. That's why he's called Simon Peter. Simon the Zealot, if you've read the New Testament. It's one of the guys. Do you know what a zealot is? A zealot was a Jewish person. We might call him radicalized. But they hated the Roman oppression that was happening to the Jewish people. And the reason why we might call them radicalized is because they would resort to violence to rebel against the Romans. They're the ones who started the Roman War. You know who else was there? There's a guy named Matthew there. He wrote one of the Gospels. He had formerly been named Levi. He's a tax collector. Do you know what tax collectors do? They're Jews who collect money for Rome so they can hold Jews in oppression. So you've got a tax collector. They're considered apostates and traitors. And you've got a zealot and unity at the Lord's table. You see, communion to celebrate. There's great diversity in the body of Christ, but there should be unity at the cross of Christ. You see, and the Bible cares a lot more about unity than most of us do as churchgoers or even pastors and elders and churches. The Bible said in Titus, it says, listen, if you've got a divisive person in your church, warn them twice, then hand them over to Satan. Like, you don't, you're done with them. Don't keep fighting for them. They're, they're revealing their hearts, and God's going to judge them and deal with them. Jesus, when he was praying, did you know he prayed for us in John chapter 17? He says this, I don't just ask for these, and he's talking about his disciples that are right there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So we're not just unified with the people in this room, other churches in this city, other churches around the world. 
we're unified with believers throughout the ages for 2,000 years. And then he says this, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I and you, that they also may be in us, so that, here's the reason, the world may believe that you've sent me. And so our unity is a testimony to the world that God the Father sent the Son on their behalf. <laughs> and think about that as a church. I think about our church. We've got a rich story. And next week I'll mention a little bit more, but a year ago on June 10th was the first service we had where two churches came together to be one church. And we talked about being better together. And, and the reason why was you had two churches. We had differences. There were different things in our backgrounds, but we decided the thing that was most important, our love for Jesus and desire to reach lost people, was more important than the things that were different. And so we focused on the thing that we had in common, the cross of Christ, and we came together because we believed that we could reach people better together. And you know what kind of tells I don't know what your conversations have been like in our community, but I'll tell you about some of mine. I had one time, I was in a locker room, the place that I work out, work out at, and a guy came up to me. That's weird, by the way. Just FYI. I didn't know him very well. Comes up to me in the locker room. He said, and he's a believer. Different denomination than either one of our churches. Comes up and he goes, I heard about what's happening at your church. How does that work? I was like, we're figuring it out. <laughs> but it's a testimony even to believers. A couple weeks ago, I was at a soccer game. And I was talking to a mom that I was trying to get to the gospel. She didn't seem very interested in Jesus stuff. And I was trying to share the gospel with her. So I started to tell the story in two churches. She goes, I've heard about that. It's a witness when, when people that are diverse can be unified for the sake of the gospel because of what Jesus has done in our lives, amen? But we know that oftentimes that's not what happens. Churches have split over stupid stuff, preferences, opinions, personalities, all, dumb decisions, all kinds of things. And Paul's going, we've got the cross of Christ and you're divided over who's got more money. And some of the rich people are oblivious to the fact that this is a problem. So what do we do? Well, the answer is this, radical relationships. Think about what we're celebrating here, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. If you go to the context and you read this on your own, we don't have time to dive into all these passages today, but Luke chapter 22 talks about the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. Mark chapter 14 talks about it. And Mark chapter 14, between verses 17 and 18, there's John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, what Jesus does, he washes the disciples' feet. Did you see the context? It says on the night when Jesus was betrayed. Do you know what's happening in Luke chapter 22? The disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. <laughs> the context is division. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Judas is about to betray Jesus. What Jesus does, he gets down and he washes their feet. He does an act of service that you couldn't even command a Jewish slave to do. And then he says, I've shown you the extent of my love. And he talks about his broken body. Isn't that the extent of his love? They didn't understand at that moment. The broken body, the shed blood, but they would. And you think about the radical extent that Jesus went to to have relationship with you so you could be reconciled with God and we could be reconciled with each other. I think a lot of times as believers we think that we just needed some help and Jesus died on the cross for us and we're like helpless victims. And if he just he showed up and he re we use the word saved. Have you been saved? We're talking about being rescued, rescued from our sin, rescued from Satan, rescued. And we think that we were like, like we were waiting for him to rescue us. Like a, a few weeks ago I used an illustration about Mount Everest. I don't know if you were here that week or not. I thought it was interesting this week Mount Everest was all over the news. I don't know if you saw that. There were a bunch of people that are trying to climb Everest. There's a picture that went viral. I think we have it here. That's about 200 people trying to summit Everest at the same time. Highest point there. Seeking worship. They want to see something very few people get to see. Maybe they're worshiping creation. Maybe they're worshiping their creator. I don't know all their hearts. But one of the stories, there were 11 people that died last time I heard. And it was because of the crowds. And one of the stories was of a man who came down to a, a pass. There are some pathways that people naturally go through. And he got stuck there because all the people that were trying to summit, he couldn't get back down. He summited a couple hours earlier, sat there for two hours and died. 
because he was waiting. And I thought, what if they had just sent like a, heli- a, a, a copter or some plane or something just to care flight him out of there? And I think sometimes that's the picture we have of salvation. Like it was just like, just come get me. That's not salvation. Salvation is you were running from God and he was running after you. You weren't waiting for him to come save you. You were rebelling. The Romans 5.8 says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That means while we were running from God, God was running after us to pursue us and rescue us when we didn't even know we needed to be rescued. That's radical relationship. So what does that look like for us? You think about this context. Rich people discriminating against poor people. They might not even know they're doing it. How many people will come to the communion table today and not even know about needs of the people in this room? Is that really really what God intended? Like, can we have unity if we don't have community? And and we live in this time period of crowded isolation where where we've got thousands of friends on Facebook and nobody really knows us. And we come into a room like this, hundreds of people in the room, and feel utterly lonely. You're sitting there, you're touching, you're like, why is this guy sitting so close to me right now, right? Some of you are. What about this? Are you guys are touching over here? We get a couple people over here. But you don't even know the people sitting around. Do you even know that? You don't have to know everybody's needs, but you should know somebody's. And if you don't, that's on you. Like radical relationships, you've got to pursue the other people. You think, what about if there is division? What if we got division in a marriage, in a relationship with another believer, maybe in this church, maybe in another church? Let me read you a passage of scripture from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 says this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Not that you have something against your brother. You already knew that. You didn't have to remember that. But you remember somebody's got something against you. That's what makes this radical. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And so I think about versions of communion that take place every week in different churches all around the world. And in America... There's probably like two versions. One version goes like this. You come in, you realize the table's out, you pray, hopefully you reflect on is there sin in my own heart, and you think about your relationship with God, everything's super personal, because you're really at church for, as a consumer anyways, and you're living in isolation, and so you're just feeding into the stuff that's already an enemy, that's killing us as the body of Christ. And you make it all about you, and hopefully you had a good experience with God, and you take the elements, and you leave, and you go about your business, you do your own thing. That's one version. There's another version, though, where you reflect on, do I have union with God? Because I'm in a communion with God. And do I have union with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Are there needs in this room? Do I have division? That t- and if there is, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't need a cracker and some juice. I need that to leave your gift at the altar. And, and imagine, envision with me what it would look like. So you've got a married couple who's been fighting all week. And then we're going to sing, you know, praise the Lord. Are you worshiping? Really? Like you're worshiping? And we're going to go take these elements. Wouldn't it be better to sit there in your seat and pray together? Or you, you see a face of somebody, you know, sitting on this side of the room, got conflict with a guy on this side of the room. Wouldn't it be better instead of walking up here to walk over there and say, hey, either I need forgiveness or I forgive? Or go out in the lobby and make a phone call, set up an appointment for Like when God looks that, because we see here they thought they were doing communion. Paul's going, that's not communion. When God looks at our worship, I think there's one version, the first version, that he looks at and he goes, these people, they praise me with their lips, their hearts are far from me. And there's a second version where sometimes you don't go through all the motions there, but that's the kind of worshiper I'm seeking. That worships me in spirit, with, my heart, with their heart, and in truth, what's accurate to my word. I'm looking for those true worshipers that I have their heart. It's a celebration of unity. It's also a declaration of death. Did you see that? 
Communion is a celebration of unity. It's also a declaration of death. Look at verse 26. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, that's interesting because we don't like death. As a culture, if you do look at the statistics, one of the things people fear the most, death's always high on the list. Public speaking's always high on the list too, which makes me wonder about what I do sometimes. What are you doing? But death is always up there. People are afraid of it. They don't like death. I, I heard one story this week. Did you hear about all the tornadoes that are happening, like storms and stuff? This one guy was talking about two tornadoes that converged, and he was there. He said, it was the scariest 15 seconds of my life. You think? <laughs> Anybody that's out there going, this is amazing. It's probably really weird. So how are Christians supposed to celebrate death? Proclaim, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. Here's why, because we live in an upside-down kingdom and we realize that death is actually a new beginning, that Jesus' death was a new beginning. He says here it's a new covenant. It gives us new life. It gives us new access. It gives us new forgiveness. That we can celebrate death because of what death means to us, specifically the death of Christ. Try to imagine being these guys here, though. The 12 guys who experienced this first. He says, it's my broken body, my shed blood. They didn't know in that moment what that meant. He's redefining the Passover meal. But when they saw their friend hanging on a cross with a broken body and they saw way more blood than they ever wanted to see and darkness covered the earth, that was a dark hour. There was a shooting this week in Virginia Beach. The mayor came out and says, this is our darkest hour. Let me tell you something, Christian, and you might need to hear this today. I don't know what's going on in your life. You might need to hear this someday in the future. Maybe just jot it down in your Bible. God's often doing his greatest work in our darkest hour. God's oftentimes doing his greatest work in the midst of our darkest hour. And these men, it was their darkest hour, and he's telling them to celebrate my broken body and my shed blood. Why? It's because of what he said right before that. If you, go, if you have your Bibles, you can look at verse 25. It says, this cup is the new covenant. And my death means something new. It's the new covenant. What's the new covenant? The old covenant was obey me and I'll protect you and bless you. Here's the problem. Nobody obeyed him. We didn't have the ability to obey him because we didn't have the Holy Spirit. And what the Old Covenant does, and you read about it in the Old Testament, and even the New Covenant gets mentioned in the Old Testament, it, all, it points us to the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, there was repeated sacrifices daily for sin. In the New Covenant, there's one sacrifice, Jesus' death on the cross. In the Old Covenant, one guy gets to go into the Holy of Holies one day a year. The New Covenant, you and I have direct access anytime we want. The Bible says that we are a priesthood. You don't need to, I don't need, you don't need, I'll love to pray for you. Believers are supposed to pray for each other. You don't need me as clergy to pray, to have access to God. You, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you go through Jesus Christ as our high priest, through the Son, to the Father, by the Spirit, you get to pray directly to him now. So here's a challenge to you. Next time you sit next to a priest on an airplane, say, hey, I'm a priest too. <laughs> Be offended looking at you. Where's your collar? And say, I have direct access to God. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. You've got, that's because of the new covenant. Because of the new covenant, you don't have for daily sacrifice. The covenant is that you, it's not based on your obedience, it's based on faith, that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. That's a new and greater covenant that gives new life. You want some great words? Next time you take communion, or even today, let these words sink into you. This, this is my body, which is given for you. How about those two words? For you. You've got a new covenant, you have new life. Do you know why? because he was your substitute in death. That's why we declare his death, because he died for you. I didn't ask him to die for me. Why is he dying for me? Somebody had to pay for your sins. And he was your substitute. 
And it's interesting to me when you get the full depth of what's happening at the Lord's Supper. He's taking a Passover meal while the Passover lambs are being sacrificed. And I told you already what happened at the Passover. That lamb is slaughtered. The blood's put on the doorpost of the house. Do you know why? So the firstborn child doesn't die. The lamb was a substitute for the child, the firstborn child. And then you read the Old Testament and you see things like when Abraham's taking his firstborn son, Isaac, with he and Sarah, first child they have, only child they have, up this mountain to sacrifice him. And the son says, Dad, where's the lamb? And then when he's about to kill his son, God says, no, 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 don't sacrifice your son. And he provides for him. You know what he provides for him? It's not a lamb. Read it, Genesis 22. It's a ram, which leaves all the Old Testament readers going, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? And then you know what happens in the New Testament? When Jesus shows up on the scene, John the Baptist goes, behold, the lamb. We've been waiting for him for thousands of years. Here he is, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then on the Passover meal, Jesus is there while Passover lambs are being sacrificed. And he says to his disciples, this is my body. This bread, bread, symbolic of provision. Jesus comes from Bethlehem, the house of bread. He's saying, I am the bread of life. It's broken for you, in your, for you, in your place. I'm your lamb. I'm the substitute for you. And then in the New Testament, in case we don't get it, there's an illustration of it. Did you know Jesus doesn't die on his own cross? There's a man named Barabbas that cross was intended for. And Pilate comes out before the people because it's a custom of the day. And he says, it's our custom that we release one person to you. And he thinks he's giving him a no-brainer. There's Barabbas, who, by the way, the Bible tells us was a murderer, an insurrectionist. He was a radicalized terrorist. And then there's Jesus. I find no guilt to this man. He's the king of the Jews. Who do you want me to release? And they go, Barabbas. And what do you want me to do with this guy? Crucify him. And the New Testament doesn't tell us what happens to Barabbas after that. But I'm going to imagine... That if I'm Barabbas, I'm probably going to go and see who's the guy who died on my cross. I'm probably going to go to Calvary. He's probably going to hear the conversation between the two thieves on the cross. You know the conversation, what happens is one guy's heaping insult. If you're the son of God, then why don't you get us all out of this thing? And then the other guy's going, we deserve this. He's innocent. If I'm Barabbas and I hear that, I'm going, I deserve that cross. Who is that man? You deserve that cross. That was your cross. That's why when you read those words, this is my body that's given for you. That's new life through his substitution in your place. It says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says this, He himself bore our sins for you in his body, this is my body, on the tree, he was broken, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. You've been given a new covenant. You've been given new access. You've been given new life. But it's not just about death. Did you see in verse 26? It says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's also to look forward to his return. This feast that we have, the Lord's Supper, is to point us to the ultimate wedding feast that we read about in the book of Revelation. And so as we look back at death, it should make us think towards the future. Many of you know, uh, this past year, my father-in-law died unexpectedly. It was a shock to our family. He was a big part of our church, bigger part of our family. And this past week was the one-year anniversary of when he had died. And we got together as a family. We went to his favorite restaurant, and we remembered him. 
and we talked about funny things, Davisms, Dave was his name, Davisms, different funny things Dave would say, what's the you know, most embarrassing moment we had with him, what's the most impactful thing he did in our life, and then one of our family members asked this question. They said, what do you think he'd say to us if he came back to us and said something to us right now? And one of my other family members chimed in and said, I think he'd say, you're going to love it here. Talking about heaven. And it got me longing for Jesus' return even more. And I see this passage where it says when we come to the table and we, we think about the broken body that we hold in our hands, we think about the shed blood as we hold that cup, it's not just supposed to make us reflect on the death of Jesus as we proclaim that, but also the return of Jesus. He came for you while you were running for him. He ran after you. And he's coming back for you. And if you want to know what that's like, then read about the wedding feast in, in Revelation because it, it points us to that. We declare his death. We celebrate unity. But there's another part to it. We examine ourselves. It's supposed to lead to, communion is supposed to be a time of self-examination. It's a celebration of unity. It's a declaration of death. And it's an examination of self. Look at the verses I haven't read to you in this chapter so far, starting in verse 27. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that's interesting, we'll underline that, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, not examine everybody else in the room, examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body which that's a debatable verse, but I think it's referring to the body of Christ, the church, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. That's a big deal. But if we judged ourselves, so here's the remedy, truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, not by each other, by the Lord, we are disciplined, but here's the reason why, not of condemnation, so that we might not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, you could say prefer one another. It says wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home. Hey, this is a word you specifically rich people. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About all other things, I will give directions when I come. But I need to tell you about this. This was really important. And I've read this passage before, and I've thought to myself, a lot of people died, a lot of people were sick. Okay, it doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know any of the people. None of the names are listed in the passage. But this week when I was reading the passage, I thought to myself, have you ever done something really dangerous you didn't realize it was dangerous? <laughs> and I thought, I remember a time when I electrocuted myself. Won't tell you that whole story. Don't have time. But yes, it happened. Some of you are going, that explains a couple things. Yeah, it does. It does. But it happened, okay? And I didn't turn the power off in the house. I didn't realize what thing I was doing. And if I'm reading this and I'm a Corinthian, okay, and I get this letter for the first time, and I'm sick, I'm going... This is why some of you are, is this why I'm sick? I didn't even realize how dangerous this was, communion. And if I'm reading this and I knew somebody who just died, it doesn't say Sophia, Gabriel, some person in there. It doesn't say when they died, that's why. It says, that's why some of you have died. I'm going, is this why? Like I thought they ate too much butter and whatever thing. I thought it was this, like natural thing. It's going, no, this is God's discipline. It didn't explain who and the exact scenario and when and how. But everybody then should be examined. We're supposed to examine ourselves? Why? And then you go back to the beginning of that verse, verse 27, so we don't take it in an unworthy manner. So what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? Let me point out something to you because we've had people in our church struggle with this before. We read this verse sometimes when we're talking about communion. It doesn't say unworthy people. 
It doesn't say don't take communion if you're an unworthy person, an unworthy man, an unworthy woman. It says an unworthy manner, in an unworthy way would be another way to say that. And so here's the reality. Communion is not for perfect people. It's for imperfect people with a perfect Savior. And so if you're thinking, am I holy enough to take communion? No, 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 wrong thought, wrong thought. That's not what we're talking about. You're only holy through the blood of Christ. What's happening at the communion table doesn't make you holy. You're not being punished for not being holy. So what does it mean when it talks about being in an unworthy manner, an unworthy way? Well, our context answers the question. If you have the means to meet a need of somebody in the body and you're ignoring their, if you're selfish and greedy, that would be an unworthy manner. The rich people in this passage that are ignoring the poor people in their church are causing division. That's an unworthy way. So you can go take the elements and God's going, that's not communion. And your hardness to the sin in your life, I'm going to have to discipline. Not to condemn you, but to save you from condemnation. Disciplines those he loves. People that are causing division. If you're divided in the church, you don't, have, you don't even have union. How can you have communion? That'd be an unworthy manner. He's only talking to believers here. If you're not a believer in Jesus, that'd be an unworthy way to, why are you celebrating the death of someone you haven't accepted the death of them in your place as your substitute? And so, what, what do we do? how do we know? Well, we examine the remedy, the remedy, the, the cure is right here in the passage. Examine yourselves, judge yourself, so then the God doesn't judge you. Not the church doesn't judge you. Not the people that are wound you don't judge you. God doesn't judge you. So you've got to ask yourself, do I have division with another brother or sister in Christ? Maybe in this church, maybe in another church, maybe somewhere else. If so, leave your gift at the altar and go deal with that. Am I not a believer in Jesus? Because this letter is written just to believers at Corinth, and it's believers that celebrate the death of Jesus. If you're not a believer, you know what can happen? You can become a believer today. It's not about what you do. It's about accepting what's been done for you. In a moment, I'm going to have elders and pastors and deacons and deaconesses come up by these tables. If you, you come to the table not to get the elements, but to receive Christ and talk to those people. Some of you here might be your spouse you need to pray with or different people, maybe somebody on the other side of this room, you go pray with them, ask for forgiveness. But you examine your heart and not ask, am I worthy as a person? What am I doing this to some flip? Do you have unrepentant sin in your life? That doesn't mean if I, I got to search and when I was three, did I steal cookies from the cookie? No, no, no. But like, are you willfully sinning in your life and then you come and you think the elements somehow make that cool? Like, no, you're bringing judgment on yourself. Stop, stop. You don't need crackers and juice. You need to repent of your sin and get right union with your father. That's the unworthy manner. It's an unworthy way in taking it. Like a flippant attitude about sin, ignoring the division you have within the body. See, God takes us way more serious than we do. And what the beautiful thing is today is we get to do this together. Thank you for joining our sermons online. We hope to see you in person soon. Our location and service times can be found at our website, sfchurch.com. If God has stirred your heart today and you'd like someone to pray with, or if you'd like more information about Jesus, please take a moment and email us at info at sfchurch.com. Thank you again. God bless.